Operator here. Welcome to the Cyberpunk Matrix Podcast, your one-stop shop for everything cyberpunk. In just a second, we're going to connect you to the cyberspace. So hold on to your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Welcome, this is your host, Alex, and you have reached the Cyberpunk Matrix podcast, your one-stop shop for everything cyberpunk. Today I'm joined by fellow cyberpunk fan, Stephen Katz, and in today's episode, we will be talking about what cyberpunk is, trying to define it better, and our favorite cyberpunk media pieces. All right, uh, Stephen, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so tell me a bit... Um, about the what cyberpunk means to you, or at least what you know about it, and uh, maybe some of the earlier media pieces that you have come into that you really liked that are cyberpunk. Yeah, sure. Um, cyberpunk to me has always meant a way of looking at our current world in extreme terms uh, with this focus on how people interact with technology and how society treats people and that uh i think wow being recorded makes this way different jesus I know, Actually, right? I'm, like i'm under the gun here i feel like the words go away don't worry you're doing great thanks um anyway uh so for me cyberpunk is all about that relationship between uh humanity and society and how people are treated and mistreated in a world that values them less and less as technology um, advances at an increasingly rapid rate. Mm-hmm. The first piece of media that I experienced that um, really exemplified that for me was probably a book called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, it's a classic, although I've read more recently that uh, it's actually something of a parody of the genre, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't talk about some of the uh, the core concepts, and I think a really uh, interesting way, this, um, well, hmm, should I give like a brief summary of Snow Crash? I'm not sure. Sure, can. you can. For some of our listeners who have not uh, read the book, it's not a movie yet, so we know they can't see it. <laughs> it's not a movie yet, which means that a lot of people probably haven't, don't know about it. So go ahead. What, what is Snow Crash about in a nutshell? Uh, Snow Crash is, in a nutshell, um, about how people are susceptible, I suppose, to uh, different kinds of messaging. Um, The eponymous snow crash is the slang term for a kind of data drug that can shut down minds and uh, even turn people into uh, basically brainless um, husks, uh, forced to follow orders of the mastermind antagonist of the story and it's interesting in the cyberpunk genre in that there's very little in terms of body modification there's not a lot of cybernetics or um people uh with these sometimes elaborate prosthetics i think define a lot of the genre but instead there's this focus on escapism into a virtual reality and the idea that the difference between computer code and the kind of machine language that runs the human brain isn't that great 
that they have a lot of things in common. And in fact, if you could learn how to program humans the way you can program technology, you could do some pretty terrible things. I think that says a lot about our society's approach to things like advertising or corporate culture, or even just a sort of mimetic passing of information across the internet. If someone shared a meme, then maybe a hundred thousand people would see it. Maybe a billion people would see it depending on how popular it gets. And that information can sometimes be dangerous, including things like, uh, I don't know, conspiracy theories or QAnon, this idea that information is virulent and that we don't have a lot of natural protections against the kinds of viruses going around these days. Hmm. So it's an idea of, of, of data being a virus uh, that affects humans specifically. That's an interesting idea to have, especially in these COVID times. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, it's true that it, there's not a lot of bot mutations, but there is, I do remember a good amount of it in the book. You have dogs that were augmented, if you remember. We have a certain, I don't know how to describe him without giving it away, but a uh, truck driver, if you will. <laughs> I guess you could say that. Um, and then you have uh, the main quote-unquote villain, who definitely was augmented. Um, that's why he's so strong. And then, I don't know, you have um, kind of a um, console cowboy. Kind of, It was the first time that kind of I saw that as like a running router guy. Um, uh, the Fed, the federal guy. Um, I thought that was really interesting as well. So there's a lot of different ideas that are kind of presented here. There's also the virtual reality part, like you said. Um, but also, I mean, like the whole world, his job delivering pizzas, I thought that was so interesting, you know, where the corporations are the ones that are in power. It's the first time that I saw that specifically. Yeah, that was an excellent, I guess, exploration of what the world looks like when the United States government that we all sort of assume is the ultimate end-all be-all of structure for our reality as United States citizens. I guess I say we, you're currently living not in the United States right now, but um, uh, the, uh, I guess the idea that when you take maybe capitalist ideology to its most extreme, then you have a world that is run by corporations that create their own rules. And those rules are enforced in a sort of casual, everyone knows how things are supposed to be done way with consequences that are both swift and dire. You know, you don't deliver the pizza within 15 minutes, you get your entrails pulled out by the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a very interesting idea. I like. I think the thing that was most interesting to me is the idea of how does a usually insular corporate culture how that can affect other members of society if they're so big that it becomes kind of the the norm, the way of doing things. So, like, uh, I guess not just hiring people, but that like, you know, you have to have your pizza delivered, and you don't mess with the pizza delivery guy. You know, or else you have to deal with the mafia. <laughs> yeah. And there's that um, sort of Wild West feeling almost to the entire book that, you know, it's not unusual for people to carry weapons of self-protection uh, just because there's nothing really keeping you from inflicting violence on your fellow man besides uh, whether or not it's too much work or if you think you're going to die because of it. Right. Yeah. 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 
And the idea, like, you don't go to the police if you need protection. You go to a corporation that sells pizzas. Mm-hmm. Or you go to the, the corporatized security forces that function as police. Right, right. And that's something that you see later on in, in different genres. Um, well, let's move on to um, later things. So actually, it's interesting. That's the first one that you saw. And like you said, it is a bit of a parody of the genre. Snow Crash, if I'm not mistaken, came out in uh, the 1990s? Yes. Uh, 1992. Okay, so early 1990s. Uh, I haven't read anything else from Neil Stevenson. Um I think none of the thing, none of his other stuff is quite as cyberpunk focused. Um, he has a very good book that's eco punk, but you're right, nothing else is cyberpunky. Eco punk? What's e- oh? So about the ecology, like the environment? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nothing related to this podcast, unfortunately, but uh, it's a good book. Hey, it's still punk in it. Um, did you ever read um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep or anything by Philip K. Dick? No, I saw Through a Scanner Darkly, that exceptionally animated film, but I didn't read anything. I think I read Minority Report once, but it was a long time ago. Mm, okay. So uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, Philip K. Dick was... Oh, jeez, when was he born? Uh, he was a bit earlier, right before Cyberpunk. He wrote a story called, a novel called Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep, which was then adapted into the Blade Runner by Ridley Scott, which then really began the genre. Uh, he was a prolific writer who wrote lots of other things um, that have its effect on current society, including Minority Report, which was actually a short story, if I'm not mistaken, that was then adapted into um, the Hollywood movie that most people know of with Tom Cruise. Um, and Steven Spielberg, I believe. Um, but um, he has a lot of other, you know, short stories and movies that were adapted. And so A Scanner Darkly, like you mentioned, was one of his books. It's a whole novel, I believe. And that one was really well adapted as far as I understand. Like uh, once he passed away, his estate, the Philip K. Dick estate or whatever, um, vetted it. And they said, you know, this is actually a really good thing. And so they used... Um, rotoscope or something like that so they filmed it live action and then they applied a comic film to it to make it look like a really really realistic anime sort of or like a cartoon really really interesting worth checking out uh robert downey jr um plays the lead role uh i won't get more into it other than it's trippy as all heck (laughs) (laughs) um so if you want to get high and, and watch it do or do not uh, you're warned. Uh, it's either a really good trip or a really bad trip, and it's about tripping, amongst other things. Uh, you know, all your usual cyberpunk tropes of uh, corporations and uh, government watching you and things like that. But um, yeah, well, it's, it's really good. To tie it back a little bit to uh, Snow Crash, uh, just briefly, I think that it serves as a really interesting allegory for the idea of drugs as being this kind of brain hacking that. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. sending your brain all these different chemical messages that it doesn't know how to parse, and um, that like the the sort of overarching consequences of that and what it does to people, yeah. and who's doing it to them becomes very relevant throughout the course of the story. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, drugs and the mind creating your reality. I- I'm sorry, but I have to do this. That ties it back to the Matrix, which came yeah, out in 1999. Um, have you seen The Matrix or the three movies? What do you think about it if you saw it? And uh, yeah. 
I have seen The Matrix, all three movies. I also saw most of the Animatrix and played at least one of the games. It's a titan of the genre. It's hard not to talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, The Matrix really, I mean, it was one of the inspirations to create this podcast, as you can see, Cyberpunk Matrix. Uh, it's, you know, the website actually, Cyberpunk Matrix blog, is really more a focus on the cyberpunk genre, but with a very obvious focus on the Matrix itself, which is really exciting nowadays because Matrix 4 is due December 22nd of this year, if you can believe it. Um, we're coming back to the series, was it uh, 22 years later? The, the Matrix 1 came out in 1999. Do you remember when you watched the first Matrix? Did you watch... The Matrix before Matrix Reloaded, as most people are supposed to, or what was your impression when you saw it first? I watched all three in theaters um, as they came out. At that time in my life, in the movies was a pretty consistent part of my family life, so I saw it with my family. How old were you in uh, in 1999 when it came out in theaters? Uh, in 1999, I must have been in middle school, because uh, I went into high school in 2003, so I guess I was probably 10? Maybe 11. <laughs> all right. Was that trippy as all hell? Or was it like, I mean, the pod scene. <laughs> I don't know if I would let my 10-year-old see it. I guess so. I don't have any kids, though. <laughs> I think that um, that's actually probably the part of the movie that was the most upsetting for me. Uh, the real world, which is, right. you know, fitting. Um, besides oh. that, it was just like a really solid kung fu movie with some philosophy thrown in. And I'd seen those before. Uh, but yeah, the scene with the in, like very disturbing body modifications that human beings had to go through to be put into that battery farm, um, the yeah. sort of womb-like uh, container with the feeling of gasping and choking, excellently rendered by Keanu Reeves, who really just sold that whole movie. Yeah, and it makes me kind of wonder, I don't know if you've seen um, The Matrix 4 is coming out. Uh, and uh, they finished filming. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Um, they filmed in Germany and in California. And in Germany, he was seen walking around bald, which suggests that that part is from the real world. And it makes you wonder, how does he come back if, in spoiler alert, at the end of Revolutions, he dies? Um so is he going to be reborn and we're going to see that pod scene again? Or is he going to be put back into a real body? I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, this is all theorizing for a movie that I haven't seen. But drawing from the themes that are prevalent in the cyberpunk genre, we can maybe make assumptions. Uh, we know that the process of entering the Matrix means essentially digitizing one's entire personality. And... If data can be encoded, then it can be copied. So if sure. it can be copied, then there may be some sort of way to recreate a personality that has been in the matrix. And then if something can be encoded, it can be decoded, possibly back into organic hardware. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And that actually, if you think about it, it's not, they already put a precedent for that. I mean, they had Smith literally copy himself in the matrix and then copy himself onto a body, and then that's how his consciousness was able to awaken in the real world in the form of a body. So if Smith was able to do that, I don't see why Neo wouldn't be able to do that 
Although I'm sure it would be the robots, I mean the machines, or um, another entity that would do it for him because it wasn't his intention. Exactly. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the same thing would be for Carrie Ann Moss. One of my big surprises is why on earth did they not ask Lawrence Fishburne to come back? Or is he coming back and it's just a secret? Um, it, hmm. In COVID times, it could really go either way because the degree of green screening that you can do in movies these days is so profound that he could be filming you know, a thousand miles away and still essentially be in the same scene as Keanu Reeves in California. But he's not in the credits. And um, I feel like in the credits, unless if they're hiding to be a big reveal, um, you could at least do the voice, right? So he'd be credited as the voice if they did do CGI. And I mean, his voice is just, it's so, it's so perfect. It's such a perfect cast. I mean, all three, in my opinion, Carrie Ann Moss, Keanu Reeves, and Lawrence Fishburne make the trifecta, the, the trinity, if you will. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's so much symbolism that we could talk about, but um, I was really disappointed. I mean, I'm glad to see some people coming back uh, I would have thought it would have been Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne, if anybody. I was surprised to see that Carrie Ann Moss is back, and it made me wonder, you know, she didn't die in The Matrix. She died in the real world, like, properly, and not even, like, entering the city, sort of, but not quite. So how are they going to bring her back? I guess perhaps the same way as, as Neil, but why are they going to bring her back? Uh, like, again, the circumstances. And, um, yeah, go ahead. This is just postulating, but uh, if we look at the character of Neo, uh, he was really reaching the end of his rope at the end of the third movie. He had been told that his existence was not revolutionary, as he had once supposed, but instead part of an existing system of cycle and rebirth. And as a result, he seemed kind of despondent about the idea of changing this implacable system that he'd been born into. Uh, sort of exhaustion I think any revolutionary might be familiar with when trying to take down a system that is bigger and older than any individual facing it. But the one thing that seemed to motivate him, even in the midst of all this hopelessness, was Trinity. Yeah. And if I was trying to bring back a cyber demigod from the dead to solve some problem, maybe bringing back some motivation would be useful. I think that's kind of... a a lazy way to use what could have been a really interesting character, but it wouldn't surprise me. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, Trinity is definitely a, a huge motivation of his. And I think the idea of love is um, prevalent. I mean, um, Lana Wachowski, I think mentioned in one of her interviews that uh, it's a story about love, or at least Keanu Reeves, one, one of them, somebody did. Um, and, and that is very present in all three of the films. One thing that I think is interesting, I don't know if you saw some of the um, shots that were filmed in San Francisco. We were able to get leaked footage because, I mean, they were filming it in broad daylight. So people were there. It's in the city center. They just filmed it. And one, the most impressive one was uh, two people who looked like Neil and Trinity that were suspended on a cable between two skyscrapers. Did you see that? I did not. So there are two characters. One looks like Neo. One looks like Trinity. Obviously, they're off in the distance. They literally did this. And this is one of the things that, you know, Wachowskis, they're famous for um, uh, filming in really incredible ways. And so they suspended a cable from one skyscraper to the other in San Francisco. And they had what I'm sure are stunt 
stunt actors. Um, and in the scene, it looks like um, the two are flying and one's holding the other. But here's the twist. There's a character that looks like Trinity and she's the one who catches the character that looks like Neo in the air. And then the character who looks like Trinity does the Superman pose and pulls who looks like Neo to fly up for a second and then they clearly cut. And so my question is, is it is Trinity now going to be Neo and is Neo now going to be Trinity or some sort of like flip? Because why would if Neo was the one that was always able to fly and not Trinity, why are the roles switched? That is an extremely compelling question. And there's also like uh, the other scenes they were filming in San Francisco where um, Keanu Reeves looking like, <laughs> I guess I'm going to put it as Hobo Thomas Anderson. Um, <laughs> has really long hair and like looks, looks like has a dirty coat, just like he had... Like he's homeless and he's walking the streets and they're filming this. And so it must be intentional. It's not just he showed up on set and he wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my theory is that Neo wakes up in the Matrix and he doesn't remember who he is. And so Trinity has to teach him somehow. But Trinity awakened to powers that she didn't realize that she had maybe she survived somehow that body death and she survived in the matrix in her consciousness and so she then has to teach neo who he was in the previous life like what well, is that conjecture but i don't that's the only way i can explain what i'm seeing well it actually asks an interesting question that the movies never truly uh directly address and that is uh, all the all the power all the insight all of the fantastic rule-bending abilities that come with being the one that Neo experiences throughout the story. Why him? And more, maybe more importantly, how him? Because if there's a why, then that establishes, okay, why Neo and not someone else? But more importantly, if there's a how, if we say this person was granted this in some direct way, because we know now that his powers were a part of the system and not contrary to it, then does that mean that these, uh, I don't know, sysadmin privileges can be granted from some higher level administration level of the machine knowledge of the computers that run the matrix? Mm. And if it can be granted, if the how is as simple as uh, clicking a metaphysical button on the profile information for a user, <laughs> then why not Trinity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not Trinity? And <laughs> to come back to our previous question, where the hell is Morpheus? Yeah, <laughs> uh, Abdul Mateen II, uh, a new Morpheus or like a younger version of him, or is it just is it not connected at all? I have so many questions. So many well, questions. if the characters that we're looking at died and were brought back, there's nothing necessarily tying them to the original timeline of the story. And in fact, this could take place decades, centuries, or millennia later, depending on how well the compact between humans and machines has been going. Yeah, that's true. Although we do know that Jada Pinkett Smith is coming back as Niobe, which would suggest that she's at least not dead. Um, could be a flashback. I'm sorry? Could be a flashback. Yeah, it could be a flashback. That is true. It could very well be a flashback. The only other ones we have are Lambert Wilson as a Merovingian, but you know he's a 
program. And Dana Bernhardt as Agent Johnson, who is also a program. Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. I don't know this offhand. <laughs> um, and then we have so many other people. Sorry, I, I'm going to try to end talking about the Matrix because obviously I get sidetracked into such an interesting topic. But, you know, Neil Patrick Harris, who's he going to be? You know, Jessica Henwick, Jonathan Groff. I feel like Jonathan Groff is going to be an agent somehow. Um, yeah, I didn't really see Neil, Neil Patrick Harris having the build of an agent. Yeah, I know, but he, I mean, I, I don't see him in anything. I, I don't, I know he can do serious stuff, but I just, that was the casting that I was just like, wait, really? Like, which character did you have in mind when you cast Neil Patrick Harris? He's a very specific kind of guy, maybe like a quirky kind of character, or he can be very serious, but I don't, I don't know. Jessica Henwick definitely is going to bring some martial arts kung fu to the to the movie. Jonathan Groff, I don't know. I think he plays an FBI agent in Mindhunter, but I only know him from uh, Olaf from Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, once he shows up on camera, I'm just going to be thinking, you want to build a snowman. <laughs> um... Then we have Priyanka Chopra, who I thought might be a young, an older version of... Um, Oh, what's her name? Sati? Um, the girl at the end of Revolutions, who is the program who is trying to flee with her family. Remember? No. At the, end of, at the end of Revolutions, there's a family who is trying to escape. It looks like they're of Indian descent. Um, and I think the daughter of that family is Sati. And she's talking with the Oracle. Again, I, I don't remember exactly. And... Um, and so I'm thinking maybe it's a grown-up version. Priyanka Chopra is playing a grown-up version of her. I don't know. Um, um, just as a side note, if I was going to pick out a quirky character for Neil Patrick Harris, Harris to play, then it would definitely be a program. Right, of course. So that's what I'm thinking. Like Neil Patrick Harris, I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe he's going to be a cool new quirky program that's under the thumb of the Merovingian. Right, because he has all these ghosts and werewolves and vampires. So, Milvatric Harris might be a, I don't know, <laughs> evil Count Olaf or something. <laughs> or that would be funny, but um, it's not like the like the full cast of uh, higher level program characters has been fully explored. You have the Oracle and the Merovingian for sure, but there could be other uh, members of the robot aristocracy living in the Matrix that Milvatric mm. Harris could possibly fill in a role for. That would be interesting. All right, let's shift gears for a second away from the Matrix to um, a more recent bit of cyberpunk media. Um, we were talking earlier before we started the podcast about Ready Player One. Um, now, this is a book that I was super psyched to see in the theaters. I don't know if you were. I read it. If It's one of the few books that I read, Ready Player One, and it felt it reminded me of the times when I was reading Harry Potter when it first came out. It was literally a page-turner. I just cover to cover i finished in like a week or two and that almost never happens for me um and then i read it a second time right before the movie came out and i saw the movie and then uh, most recently ready player 2 the sequel that came out i read that really quickly as well and i'm looking forward to if that's gonna be made into a sequel as well uh what were your thoughts with ready player one ready player one uh the book i had a very similar experience with i found it to be a page turner um the deep dive into 
uh, historical media. I almost feel like it's the wrong word because it's too current to be considered historical. But um, perhaps, <laughs> yeah. But um, I guess to a certain extent, how do I put this? There's a lot of things about society that people are assumed to know about, whether it's uh, the name of certain actors or um, certain movies that everyone, oh, you have to have seen that. You can't believe you never, you never read that book. You never watched that TV show. Um, I get this all the time. I never seen Friends. Never was interested. Never watched it. People get mad at me for it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Ready Player One was the first time I read a book where not everything, I am not uh, a Holloway uh, fanatic, um, but enough things were familiar to me and like explained thoroughly when they weren't familiar. Yeah. And I felt like it was a book that was speaking to a uh, part of the, the great wide world of media that I had interacted with, that I yeah. cared about. When I mm-hmm. see little nods to things that I enjoy that are part of my childhood, it just fills me with happiness. And I know that's a cheap mm. trick to make me engage in the book, but it absolutely yeah. works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you were familiar with some of the older, older games? Because a lot of those I, I had no idea about. Um, I can imagine it, but I, I wasn't familiar. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of things that I definitely didn't know. Um, there were some like obscure things, especially in terms of like the movie and um, TV show categories. I just didn't, I didn't watch all the things that uh, Holloway and uh, Ogden, uh, yeah, Parzival, um were were a big big fan of. Um, but you know, yeah. they're like little little pieces of gaming history that I thought were fun. Um, I, I remember not playing, but hearing about adventure or playing Zork. And these are like goofy old things that most people never have to hear of in their entire lives, and it made me. <laughs> I hadn't heard of either one of those, I, I must be honest. Um, but I got a lot of more of the references from the movie once we saw all those references there. Like, uh, I feel like they modernized some of the... How did you feel about the movie adaptation? Because obviously there's a lot that was different. I mean, they put a whole... Uh, the Shining part, which was completely not in the book at all. You're right. It was a good scene. I'm I'm not going to malign Spielberg's ability to craft a beautiful and engaging movie, but I do think there were some changes in the movie that undercut the underlying message of the book and mm-hmm. also, like you said, modernized it in a way that was designed to be more approachable when kind of the point was nostalgic. It wasn't. Yeah, it was a particular breed of nostalgia for mm-hmm. people that maybe don't always get that. Um I'm, I'm going to make a, a pretty specific complaint. So um, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah. So the rising action of the book really begins. The world building stops and the adventure starts when Parzival, the main character, finds the very first key. No yeah. one has found it in decades of looking, but right. he's the very first one to find the very first key. Right. And the reason he's able to is because... When Holloway designed the egg hunt, he made it such that the very first key was available to anyone. It was in a free area of the world. You didn't need to have a certain amount of resources. You could be any person who felt like looking in the right place and deciphering the right clue. And that included even being a student, someone with access to zero resources and freedoms. 
I found that really important because the underlying message of any decent cyberpunk story has to be populist. It has to be uh, for people who have nothing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And after that, Parzival's whole life changes, and the book goes pretty deep into how that's good because suddenly he's not dirt poor and yeah. bad because it also wrecks his life to be famous one way or another. And yeah. uh, the author doesn't handle the end results of that perfectly well, but that's fine. It's an interesting question to put in the book, and the structure of it is, um, I guess, cognizant of the fact that if this was only available to people who had a bunch of money, then it would be a broken test. It would be a broken world even more than it already was. But in the movie, the first key, everyone knows about it. It's just an impossible uh, race that people can't seem to win. So everyone's been throwing their faces at it over and over again. And it explicitly shows our main character, who is supposed to be dirt poor, disadvantaged, and having absolutely no prospects for his life because he lives in a bleak reality where he can only catch the smallest hint of reprieve in a virtual world. Instead, he's got a fancy-ass car. He can collect money from this race because he's so good at it. And that means that it's a self-sustaining enterprise from him. (laughs) And it gives the impression that this isn't for everyone. This is for the chosen few. And that's a disgusting message to begin the game with, to begin the hunt. Mm, okay, so it's only for people who are talented and not for anybody who is just has the motivation to look. That's exactly. The main difference. Yeah. Right. It should be for people with passion instead of for people with money. Interesting. No, I, I think that's a very fair complaint, one that I never really noticed before. Um, I really missed that that the, they, he spends a lot of time in the book building that world of uh, oh god what's the name of the planet um, the gladiator style arena planet that starts off as the education thing I mean for me as a teacher I mean I'm an English teacher and so the world that he described of learning was just such a fantastical one and one that I always come back to that I would love absolutely love to be able to give virtual lessons in that nature, like with a virtual reality headset where I'm in a classroom where I'm on a planet or something and all my other students can't hurt or bother each other or have to pay attention to a certain extent, which I guess that's kind of bad, but but, (laughs) um, being able to really show them and and have them have fun in the learning just seemed like a dream where we could just go to any place. And I don't teach science or math or like history where it it would be a little bit easier to to practice in terms of the VR, but as a learning tool, it just seemed like an amazing thing. And I mean, look what happened. You would think that it'd be impossible to put anything online in terms of classes. And the whole world, the entire world was forced to do that with COVID. Mm-hmm. And virtual reality is just around the corner. We already have HoloLens and Google. Well, I mean, Google Glass was not quite working, but um, we have different they have headsets and the price is too high, but that price is going to come down. And I think it really is just a matter of time before they start thinking, oh, we have iPads in every classroom. Let's put VR headsets in every classroom and then augment, (laughs) pun intended, um, the learning. Um, And so he painted that picture really nicely in the book. And there was no mention of it whatsoever in the movie because I guess for Spielberg, it wasn't a relevant part of the story. Um, It also... I, I agree, by the way, as an educator, it was a, an amazing and idyllic way 
to engage in distance learning. Uh, I've had to do distance learning for the past year, and uh, it's not as fun without some measure of presence, having the ability to to even simulate in some vague way this sense of community that you can have in a classroom is irreplaceable. But um, I would have liked even a few of my students to put on their videos. I mean, nobody put on their videos. Yeah. <laughs> it was always just me the whole time. I don't know about you. Um, yeah, that would have helped and feel like it's more of a community for sure. But uh, I also think that it's an interesting contrast because the, I guess the concluding message of Ready Player One is that eventually, like the game can be really fun, but eventually the time comes to turn off the game and go outside into the real world because it's there and it needs paying attention to if you're going to make it any better than it was before. It's it's an right. excellent conclusion. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. There's a lot of the book that's not perfect that I that I argue with all the time, but I think that its overarching moral is fantastically done and delivered. But um, it doesn't go overboard. I, I think that when it describes some of the way that these worlds were lovingly created or uh, the utility of something like uh, a phenomenal online learning room that gives access to a world-class education to anyone in the world. These are amazing tools. And that's how we should look at technology, is tools to improve the living world. And it's something that cyberpunk um, tends not to get an opportunity to address because, well, usually the world's too bleak and too corporatized and too managed by those in power uh to even have a hope of improving it uh right, even yeah. even stories like the matrix or snow crash uh they tend not to have a like a really positive outlook for the world going back to something good so much as just ending the horror right yeah and i think a lot of the underarching message for most cyberpunk what, what makes it cyberpunk is that cyberpunk is meant to be a warning of what technology should not result in so it's saying, you know, you have these things like drones that are supposed to improve your lives where you can get packages delivered to you faster. But what if that's taken too far and then you have drones monitoring people and they have no privacy and no freedom uh, and they live in this controlled state? So like they, it paints a bleak picture to make sure that we don't go down that path because we won't know that it's the bad path and one thing leads to another unless we get a very stark picture at the very end. Um, so I can see how it's very negative, but like, there is that other flip side of that utopian. That's why um, I thought there was a really interesting movie that came out a while ago from Disney called uh, Tomorrowland. Did you ever see that one? I didn't. Tomorrowland is – I actually did an, uh, an, an article that you can check out on cyberpunkmatrix.com about whether that counts as cyberpunk. And, well, I'm going to say ultimately that it doesn't. But it's kind of the flip side of cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is dark and dystopian because of a warning of what life should not be, whereas Tomorrowland offers a glimpse of what utopia could be, of what technology could be if used in the right ways. Um, and the story itself is actually pretty interesting, in my opinion. It is kind of a kid-focused, and obviously Tomorrowland is based off of Tomorrowland from Disneyland, Walt Disney's vision of a continually improving tomorrow uh where technology helps all i guess um so i i feel like tomorrowland serves as the light-sided utopian flip side of the coin of what dystopian cyberpunk usually is and so it kind of 
it provides the opposite side of this is what cyberpunk is not but it would be nice having that kind of world so um two things to say to that one sort of off the record uh i just remembered there was a book i read a while back called futuristic violence and fancy suits there's actually a sequel i think that just came out recently that uh dives a lot into cyberpunk drone logic like what a world looks like with um drones oh, and, that sounds really interesting um auto self-driving cars show up and it's like a very um of the now kind of look at what cyberpunk will look like as opposed to a lot of cyberpunk tropes that were developed back in the 80s and we sure, sort of yeah. keep them around because they're relevant but um it, it's an updated look at the concept so i thought you'd be interested but yeah. um in more relation to your your tomorrowland uh comment I think that maybe the crux of what makes Tomorrowland not cyberpunk and not dystopian and what makes other stories that feature you know, similar levels of technological advance punkian and dystopian um, is whether or not technology is used to advance the value of human life. I think that maybe the underlying core component that makes something cyberpunk is what is human life worth? Who is worth that? Are, are human lives valued equally? And I was thinking about that because of the episode of uh, Love, Death, and Robots that I watch most frequent, most, most recently, not frequently, that I watched most recently, uh, that asked that question very deliberately and uh, I thought was an amazing allegory for our current focus on youth and the present, but like... Mm -hmm. Uh, the devaluation of the next generation as seen in the lack of long-term decision-making that we're making all the time as communities and as countries, the ability for us to ignore the consequences of our actions in terms of global warming or um, the way that people, we're allowing people to become disenfranchised uh, such that um, it feels like the next generation, maybe the generation after that will be nothing more than wage slaves there's oh yeah is that yeah. The pop squad sorry or which episode are you referring to sorry i am referring to pop squad which is a very difficult episode to watch and um maybe check trigger warnings if you're going to check it out uh from listening to this podcast but mm -hmm. it asks i think the very interesting question of which lives matter and answers with the intriguing answer of whoever got there first and that's a scary answer. Yeah. And I think it means a lot looking at that question from the perspective of our society, how youth is lauded, but childhood is reviled, how richness is both uh, sought after, but also protected. This idea that there's a limited number of spots in the kingdom of heaven where everyone has too much and everyone else gets not enough. This idea that there's no way of improving life for the majority so instead we harden the walls surrounding the minority it's such an amazing look at the deeply stratified existence we're currently living in made i think only slightly more drastic yeah and that's a it's a reality that i think a lot of people a lot of countries experience um of a wealthy minority and uh an undercast majority and uh I don't know if that's even this, I feel like that probably the case in not just humanity, but other like animal kingdoms, other, you know, like lion prides or different types of animal 
um, species. So it's it's not unique to humanity, in my opinion. It's just it's more extreme. <laughs> in a uh, maybe the opposite of a fun fact, I read a while back that it's common in lion prides for God. I think it was incoming males when they uh, enter a pride. If there's any younglings from a prior male, they'll slaughter them. Mm, yeah. And I fully expect you to cut this because it's just a gross fact about lions, but <laughs> to emphasize your point, it's it's really not just a human trait that we have this, I don't know. I think that how about this? Selfishness is a survival trait. Sure. It's it's effective in certain capacities all across nature. It's just not the only effective survival strategy. The idea of creating community and caring for other people in it is so abundantly effective that it is the ability to build communities that has turned humans into the dominant species on the planet. Right. Absolutely. And in fact, it is such a profoundly robust system of creating prosperity in a community to ensure the survival of everyone in it and the continued genetic material being passed down from gener generation to generation, it's so robust and powerful that it can even tolerate the parasitic actions of selfish individuals who benefit at the exclusion and at the cost of the lives and sanctity of other people in that community. Absolutely. The fact that we can survive a Bezos or a Jobs <laughs> or a Gates or any other number of extraordinarily wealthy parasites is incredible and speaks to the hardiness of our ability to build a community. Absolutely. I, I'll just make one small comment that I feel like Gates isn't so much of a parasite considering how he has kind of left his welfare to a certain extent and now is working so hard to eradicate viruses <laughs> and was one of the few people who was like, we're not ready for the next pandemic, let me tell you. Um, and all of his work um, fighting vi um, viruses and trying to promote vaccines. But in any way, um, what I wanted to come back to is your point about building a community um, is a great way to end our segment. So uh, what better way to make, improve humanity by building community instead of being selfish by joining the Cyberpunk Matrix podcast and uh, the community of cyberpunk enthusiasts? <laughs> That's a great so, advice, uh, yeah. So thank you so much, Stephen, for being on the show. Um, is there anything, if, if people want to read more about your views on things, is there anywhere they can go? Or uh, Yeah, they can they can tune into this podcast again because I'm certainly coming back. Okay. Well, we'd love to have you again here at Cyberpunk Matrix, Stephen. Um, and for your very um, insightful thoughts, uh, I'm definitely going to be asking you more about different things as they come up, maybe less from past cyberpunk media but but and more on modern cyberpunk media we didn't even get into altered carbon and we didn't even get it to um, cyberpunk 2077 there's so much we can get into so uh we'll have to get into it next time all right thanks so much steven thank you alex it's been great you have just been in the cyberspace with your host alex welcome back to the desert of the real if your upload was smooth Leave a five-star review on iTunes and subscribe for more content.